Okay, so we've obviously been looking at the flip side today, and uh, we're going to try and get this down here somewhere. Um, look at things sort of slightly differently. Um, I'm going to be sort of kind of trying to tell two stories in one, so it may all go horribly wrong, but we'll see how it goes. Many, many years ago, perhaps only a few of you may know, I didn't necessarily start life as a teacher, but I had a job just over 30 years ago with the John Lewis Partnership, and I managed to get through the first interview, and um, we were then invited down to London to one of the big John Lewis uh, stores in Sloan Square to, for the second interview. And there were about sort of 10 or 12 candidates all sort of vying for, uh, I think, about three or four sort of jobs. And they put us through our paces all morning, making us do all those kind of ghastly sort of management training sort of uh, tasks where you're kind of competing against one another, but you're supposed to be working with one another at the same time. And uh, we just about got through to lunchtime. And the only bonus that I could see for this particular day was the fact that they were going to give you as much as you wanted to eat uh, meal in the rooftop restaurant at, uh, at Slo- uh, Peter Jones Sloan Square, as it was in those days. And, uh, you know, you could have this lovely slap-up lunch. But there was a catch, because... Right at the very last minute, it was about two minutes to one, and lunch was booked from one till two, they said to us, oh, by the way, when you come back, the next task that you're going to have is going to be to give a presentation. Whoops, I've just gone on. Whoops, let's just try and... There we go. And they said, when you come back at two o'clock, you're going to be giving a presentation. And... Those were, quite literally, the rules of the presentation. Just about to go off and enjoy this lovely lunch, but when you come back, you will be given, draw out of the hat, uh, a particular topic card. You've got no real time to prepare at all. Um, On that topic, you've got to stand up in front of everybody else and talk for three minutes. Um, Your audience will be present, and as you can see down the bottom there, you're going to be assessed. Now, I think it was always a very clever move because it meant that, of course, we all went up, everybody felt as sick as anything. Nobody could eat anything <laughs> at lunchtime, so their, their eat as much as you like didn't really mean anything. Anyway, we came back at two o'clock with very mixed feelings, and I pulled out the, my card, and my card, all it had, they were all just like one word, and it had satisfaction on it, satisfaction. So, looks lovely, but I think I was probably feeling a bit more like that. That was uh, what I was thinking about at the time. So I start to think, well, what are they trying to expect you to do here? What, what are they expecting you to do? There's an interview with the sort of John Lewis partnership. What are they expecting you to do? But expectation, just like in our reading today, is not always the full story. Expectation is the root of all heartache, according to Shakespeare. So I decided this was going to be this was going to be the thing for me. So I've started to think about it. What is everybody going? What is everybody going to do? The first couple of people tried to come up. It, it wasn't great. I can't remember what their topics were. They tried to relate it to the John Lewis partnership. 
And there's uh, something that Stas will be able to uh, uh, show you. So clearly, I thought, well, it's going to be about customer satisfaction. Customer satisfaction. But anyway, I can't talk about that for three minutes. I really didn't know much about it. I hadn't done an awful lot of preparation for the interview anyway. So at this point, you have to think, okay, I've got to think a little bit out of the box. What can I do thinking out of the box to try and go for something else? So I thought the best thing I can do is tell stories. I'm good at telling stories. So I thought it's time to tell a story. So what's the first thing that came into my mind? Well, something I'd done ages and ages ago at school. So I thought, right, I'm going to tell them all about the wisdom of Solon of Athens, 630 BC to 530. 60 BC, approximately, uh, at, uh, at, that, at that time. And he's uh, quite an old man. He was full of wisdom. He'd made all the rules and regulations for the citizens of Athens. And he was really probably the founder of sort of getting demo Western democracy underway. He set up all these rules and regulations. And then he decided he'd leave Athens for 10 years. And uh, he, would, he would go off and go traveling. And on his travels, he went to the kingdom of Lydia. And Lydia is modern-day Turkey. And at that time, it was ruled by the great King Croesus, who was probably the richest man uh, in the world. And there's Croesus on his sort of throne. And he was aware that this guest had come from Athens called Solon. And he said to Solon, strangely enough, you'll start to see the link, who is, do you think, Solon, the most satisfied man in the world? Who is the happiest, most satisfied, most content man in the world? Now, of course, of course, he expected, the expectation was that he was simply going to say, well, of course, my lord, it is you, King Croesus, you are the most satisfied man. And the old man, Solon, leant across him, and didn't give him the expected answer. And he came up with this chat. Tell us. Tell us a story. No, tell us the Athenian. So tell us the Athenian came from a fine city, he said. He was poor, but he had worked very, very hard. All his family loved him. He lived to see his children have children, which was quite unusual in those days, because life expectancy was only normally around about 45, 50 years. He was a God-fearing man. He helped to save Athens when the city was attacked. And he died a fine death and was buried with full state honours. Well, as you can imagine, this was not what Croesus was expecting. And Croesus was very annoyed. Okay? Now that, therefore, brings us, I think, to our first big statement... Wives, submit to your husbands. Fat chance. Right. Okay. There, if you like, that, heads and tails, that was the expected answer. In the time that Paul was writing in, in Ephesus, 
it was set up as a patriarchal state. That meant that the man ruled. And if you were in, in Greece, which is, which is where essentially Ephesus was, it was the Kyrios who was the head of the household, and he said what went. If you were in Rome, it was the paterfamilias. He was the head of the household, and he, was the, you know, he made the rules. And quite frankly, unfortunately, the wives had to do as they were told. But, of course... As we know, and we've seen this morning, there is a flip side. You recognise that, don't you? Breakfast in bed, nice cups of tea. Husbands, Paul goes on to say, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now this is the countercultural teaching. This is the radical teaching. This is the very opposite to what people would have been expecting. We today, Christians today, probably get worried about the first statement, wives submit to your husbands, and it causes, can cause lots of problems. In, in Paul's time, that statement would not, nobody would have batted an eyelid at it. But this second statement, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church, was the much more controversial statement. That was the flip side. That was Paul balancing up saying it's not just about human relationships. Human relationships work through Jesus' teaching, which was to show respect both ways. Anyway, back to my story. Croesus was still very annoyed, as you can imagine. He hadn't had the answer he was expecting. So if he wasn't going to be placed first, perhaps at least he might be placed second. So he said to Solon, probably a bit more sulkily this time, Okay, who is the next most satisfied person that you know? And Solon thinks again, and he says, Oh, yes, that must be Cleobus Bitten and their mum. <laughs> well, who on earth were they? Well, they, they were a little family. They came from Argos. That's not the shop where you buy things out of a catalogue. That was a place in Greece. Um, a mum had two sons. They were very healthy and very athletic. And one day, mum had to attend a religious ceremony. She had to go to a religious ceremony. And um, as you do in those days, you called the taxi, but your taxi was a couple of oxen to pull your cart. And the oxen didn't turn up on time, and she wasn't going to make it. And her two sons, very heroically, harnessed themselves to the cart, as you can see in this famous painting, and... They dragged her almost six miles all the way into uh, uh, the city to attend the festival. And they got there on time. And as you can imagine, as she came in on this cart being pulled by her son and people started to notice and cheer. And there's nothing that mums love more than you know, when, when other people see that their sons are great. And so she was very, very happy. She was very satisfied with this. And she attends her religious service. Her sons are there with her. And Solon said, she, I think, was the next most happiest person that I've come across. Croesus, by this stage, was even more annoyed. And that brings us, therefore, to our second big statement, as you saw with myself and my uh, reprobate FIFA-playing son earlier. <laughs> second big statement. Children... Obey your parents in the Lord, honour your father and mother. Drawing, of course, 
uh, upon the uh, uh, sort of uh, the, ten, the Ten Commandments. And again, this statement would not have surprised anybody in the ancient world at all. Nobody would have been surprised by this. I mean, children really up to the age of coming, coming of age, and if their father was still alive, they were still sort of under his rule. If you were a young girl, you were probably going to be married off at the age of 14 or 15, as young as that. Um, it would be a, probably, an, in certainly in wealthy families, it would be an arranged marriage. Uh, you really you had to obey. You had no say in the matter whatsoever as a child. So forget FIFA, you know, you have to do what you're told. So again, this statement by Paul should have been, would have been no surprise. But the next statement, fathers do not exasperate your children. Okay, fathers do not exasperate your children. Okay, would have come as a surprise. Again, this is the flip side. This is Paul is always speaking in these pairs, giving us one side, the conventional side, but then following it up through Christ's teaching, Christ's teaching which shows respect for all. Back to my story. Croesus is decidedly dissatisfied, I think, by this point. He's not very satisfied. And he finally says, what about my satisfaction? What, where does that rank? And all the wise man from Athens could say is, look to the end. He gives him this kind of cryptic remark. He just says, look to the end, whatever that, whatever that should uh, mean. And before I tell you what the end is going to be, let's look at our third big statement this morning. Slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Now, this one, again, is quite difficult for us. We don't live, okay, yes, there is modern slavery, but we don't live in a a society where a third of the population in the ancient world, when Paul was writing, were slaves. They had no rights. They had no property. They were simply the, the, the chattel, the property of their masters. And here's a lovely wall painting that comes from Pompeii. Um, that was buried and preserved. And this painting in the House of the Veti comes from about 65 AD, which is almost exactly very, very similar time to when Paul was writing. And here you go, in a painting in a rich person's house is a picture of the mistress being waited on hand and foot by the slaves around her. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And yet, again, there is a flip side. There is the other side. And the light, sorry, it's a little bit blurry, the image. But this is a lovely image of the 19th century abolitionist, abolitionist um, Frederick Douglass, who was born into slavery, uh, but through a few lucky breaks in his life was actually freed. He became a very, very powerful master, but tried to remodel Based on the teaching from Ephesians, he tried to remodel this second part. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Your master in heaven shows no favoritism. Jesus doesn't show favoritism to us. We are all welcomed in by him. Master, slave, slave, master. It doesn't make any difference. And Frederick Douglass did that by modelling a a sort of uh, a household where he was head of the household 
and he treated his uh, slaves with complete respect. So I've probably gone, I've got two minutes 50, I reckon. I've probably gone a little bit longer than that. But by this stage, I had about 10 seconds left in my talk. So I did have to mention quickly what the end of the story was. And the end of the story comes like this. 20 or so years later, the great King Croesus, his fortunes changed. He was invaded by Cyrus the Great, who came from Persia, swept him with his armies into what is today central Turkey, and basically destroyed Croesus and all his wealth. And this lovely red figure, Amphora, which is in the Louvre in Paris, shows this. It shows King Croesus has been placed on the funeral pyre. He's going to be burnt alive, which was, again, something that happened in ancient times. Uh, Cyrus to get his revenge. And just before the servant went to light the, uh, the flames on the funeral pyre, Cyrus says, stop, stop. He could hear Croesus was saying something. And Croesus said, Solon was so right he ought to have talked with every king in the world. I would have given up my fortune to have had it so. I would have given up everything I had to have listened to the wisdom that I had been given. And isn't that like us, in a sense, I think, in a Christian model as well? That would we not give up everything to listen and take the advice that Jesus gives us. We as Christians, we often, you know, through like our teaching here in the church, with, with the young people, we are sort of sowing those early seeds, sowing those seeds that may come back and we hope, we pray, will be reflected on at a later stage. So our final, my final little message to you brings us back, I think, to that very first verse of our reading today. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what I think this whole passage is actually about. Show that kindness and respect as brothers and sisters of Christ that we show to one another. So the model that Christ has should be our model that we show to one another. There is no hierarchy. There is no older and younger. There is no sort of, I'm in charge, you're not in charge. That shouldn't happen. And I think really strongly that should be there. We try to model that, don't we, in our families, in our workplaces, uh, as our young people, in their schools, and obviously to the strangers that we meet as well. And let's not forget it, right at the end, most importantly, also in the way that we deal with one another here as brothers and sisters in our own church. Okay, so thank you for, thank you for listening. And... Uh, that was my little talk about satisfaction. If you want to know whether I got the job or not, or why I've ended up being a teacher, well, you'll probably know the answer. <laughs>